So we're following up after the, I love this time of the year, but I also actually want it to be the whole, every year, all the time, is really after Easter, trying to kind of follow up on what was God trying to do with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I think most of us know what we hope he was not doing, and that is just providing a place to have a church to take up Sundays. And that it was more than just what looks like often an Old Testament church just with some new clothes on. Um, where Jesus said, I was reading this morning, where he was speaking to some of the men, the men and women and he said, you know, you have a fine way of reducing everything to your traditions. And you love your traditions. And you love the way you do things. And the way you do things have become so embedded in you that you actually think it's God. And the trouble is the people around you beyond your religious sort of center, don't hear God at all. They just see power. They just see people with opinions. But they don't see anything that attracts them. And that's why when Jesus went out into the, into the countryside, when he went outside the synagogue, outside the control atmosphere of the religious leaders, um, he found people who were absolutely starving for God. They just didn't know what he looked like. Because their life had been ruled by religious oppression. I mean, Canada now, we, we are ruled by religious oppression. The religion is not Christianity. The religion is self. The religion is my right, my entitlement. The religion of Canada is, is about so-called freedom. But there are more rules to God, minority groups and freedom than there is freedom. And depending which group you're in depends how quickly you're offended. We don't, we're not free at all. And so there's an element of, of uh, recognizing that. And the reason it's like that is because the Christian church, when it had the opportunity, let's say in Canada, was just religious. And so people said there's no relevance here. They're already disillusioned after the war years. And they didn't have any sense of hope in what the church had to offer other than religion. Some people went for that. Jesus that we're talking about is one who came that there might be life and there might be hope and there might be joy, but he was he's totally not like you and me. It takes our whole lives to begin to allow that to sink in because I can agree with that statement when I'm staying saying, well, he and me are tight and it's cool. But there comes a moment when we all enter that realm like Peter did where we go, Jesus, I will never leave you. And we might not even say it publicly, we might say it privately in all kinds of ways, confidence, smugness, um, comfort. And then something happens. And then we're not sure. And uh, there come moments in our lives, and there should come moments in our lives, where we actually end up in despair. And we say, Jesus, I can't follow you. Because I'm not what you, I, I can't do it. And the church has been a place where people have just been weighed down with guilt and accusation when you're in those moments. People say, I'm not spiritual, I'm not good enough, I'm not this, I'm not that. And God, of course, always says, I know that. I'm a man of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. And when I call myself a Christian, that doesn't mean I've become all of a sudden clean. I am clean spiritually, but I'm being made clean. Paul talks about it like sanctification. He says, I was saved, I w am saved, and I will be saved. So there's an element of this always process. So the testimony of the Christian 
I, I always talk about it. The, Christian, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, the Christian knows where to get a shower. It's pretty much as that. And you need a shower every day to be made clean with your body. You need the same in the spirit. It's called grace, humility, under no illusion that I am not the savior of the world. I know the one who is. And that's the good news. But the human spirit is such that every little bit of knowledge we have, we puff ourselves up and go, well, I, God is really happy and glad to have me. And other people might look and say, I don't know why he has you because you were not a good... I know you. And I don't feel the love of God in you. I wasn't going to say any of that. I have no idea why I started with that, but that doesn't matter. We'll trust. I want to talk about the 9 o'clock in the morning Poor old Walter, he saw the name of my sermon and thought we were meeting at 9 o'clock this morning. <laughs> 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, it was a book, actually, I can't remember the, the author. Dennis Bennett, thank you. He's an Anglican minister. And, and uh, 9 o'clock in the morning is the time where, Pete, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples who were gathered there um, and they started speaking in tongues and, you know, half the church has spent all their lives arguing about that. And, ah, uh, oh, I won't go down that trail today. Um, it's just so silly to me that we who are so powerless and are so in trouble argue about how to diminish power rather than to release it. We argue about how to let everything that's... The only things that are acceptable are the things we can understand. I mean, how incredibly boring and how incredibly small must God be to cram his way through my little narrow intellect. And our issue is we're insecure and we're afraid of losing control, which we don't have anyway, so we have to try and understand everything. And, it, and it's, we are called to be children because children don't understand anything. The children know one or two things. What do they know? Children know if they are safe and they are loved, they are free. The sign of a happy child is one who laughs, runs around, is not afraid. The sign of an abused child is one who is very quiet, very kept to themselves, doesn't play because they might get into trouble. Spiritually, that is exactly the same. I mean, people do say, I, I'm just not expressive. That's why I was joking with you about raising hands and stuff. I'm not just not expressive. And I, I've joked for years and said, well, I've seen you at a hockey game. Your worship in the hockey game is way out of line with what you're in church. You are able. We're all able. It's just about what stirs in us. And so for me, it just becomes, Lord, I want more. It's not about being guilty or feeling condemned. It's just I want more. I want to be freer, whatever that means. I want to be as expressive as I can be. I want to give you honor and glory. I wanted to come from in here. I couldn't care less about what you think on one level. I wanted to be a response to you because there's something very, very powerful about seeing people worshipping God. Because what it tells you is they know who they are. They are not God. And I've been around enough people in the church, outside the church, who behave as if they are God. And it's ugly. And it's wonderful to see people, particularly people who have influence, actually bowing the knee. I nearly showed you a video today with just Randy Clark talking about humility. And he just says, I know where I can. Maybe I'll show it to you next week. He just says, I know, you know, because he was asked the question, how can you do all these healing ministries? You do all this stuff and yet you remain so humble. He says, I know where I came from. 
I know what God's done in me. And he also kind of, I've heard him in another place say, when you do a healing ministry and you have to deal with the people who aren't healed, you don't have room to be proud because it breaks your heart. There's nothing actually glamorous about a healing ministry because you have to deal with all the people who get disappointed. And you have to deal with why, Lord? Why not them? And I want to talk about healing today. You know, some people also think, you know, get off the topic of the Holy Spirit and get off the topic of healing. Let's just do something else. And I go, what else is there to do? What else is there to talk about? I mean, I every sometimes say, okay, everybody who's sick or got some issue that you want Jesus to heal, stand up. Most of you stand up. You're still standing up. So I guess we stop talking about it when nobody stands up anymore. And it always amazes me because people say, you shouldn't talk about healing so much. And then, well, for the person who needs healing, it might be a good idea. But really what I'm after is I also am sick of talking about healing. I want to see it. I want to see more of it. And one of the things that's becoming clear and has taken a long time to become clear because I'm a bit dense is that I used to think, well, if I gave a really good sermon, then something would happen. And that might happen once a year, but it's a lot of pressure. And so what I want to look at today, and it's, it's tucked in between the lines of what I'm saying, is that we will see the level of healing in our midst that is remarkable when we together share responsibility for that. And that's why I said at the beginning, if everybody came into this building with your attitude, what would the atmosphere be like? That's not to condemn you, it's just to actually call you up and say, so what would it be like? Because you are a contribution. And your presence is a contribution. And your attitude is a contribution. And you're either... Because at 9 o'clock in the morning, when they heard that they were all speaking in tongues, right at the end it says, and some of them just laughed and thought they were drunk. Your attitude actually matters. You impact the atmosphere, either in a toxic form or in a supernatural way that builds faith. And you don't have to beat yourself up. You can just say, Lord, here I am. I want to be one of those people. That's all you have to do. And then he'll start saying, well, let me work with you. No, don't touch me. Do it privately. And some of you, you never see God work because you've got way too many conditions. Way too many conditions. You're trying to think yourself into healing. It won't happen. That's why they put you to sleep when they do major operations. Because you just talk too much or you scream too much or what? something will happen. You'll just say, stop interfering, just play dead. Spiritually, it's the same. Play dead. Shut up in the name of Jesus. How many of you are trying to tell God what to do? How he should work with you? What he should do? How he should actually work out your situation so that you will be happy? How many of you are trying to direct him? How's it working? From a kindred spirit. Give it up. So this guy, he's speaking Peter stood up with the, with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now Peter, as we know, is one who jumps in before he thinks. Jesus loved him because he actually did that. And he also had his hands full because he did that. Peter had stood up, you might notice, after, uh, after Jesus w- was ascended. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. And uh, when they arrived, they went upstairs and... Uh, in verse 15, <laughs> and they were all there. Guess who stood up? Peter. Hate silence. Got to do something. So what does Peter do? He says, um, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled 
And we need to get somebody to fulfill the place of Judas. We're going to draw lots for this. I don't think that was God's spirit. I think Peter was jumping the gun. And God sort of tolerated it. I think Paul was the guy. But Peter hadn't got a clue about that. I don't blame him. I would have done the same thing probably. I know some of you would have. You who organizes and, you know, this, we've got to have this in order. Um, other verse would have gone, yeah, whatever. N- neither are very good. Anyway, so I think he jumped the gun myself, but this time he didn't. And what is, it, what is remarkable about this talk is that Peter is a fisherman. He's a guy who's walked with Jesus. He's totally, totally failed. Everything he said he believed in, he messed up. And he experienced the grace and the love of Jesus that kind of said to, had, had to say to Peter, we all need this again and again, encounters with God where he says, I still love you. Get over yourself. I'm the savior of the world and if I don't rely on you. I rely on me and the Holy Spirit and the Father. We're the ones who do this stuff. We just need your grubby fingers. We just need your skin. And we can make you look remarkably good. But I want you to know that when you fail, I don't want you to get depressed. And when you succeed, I don't want you to get pig-headed and think it's all about you. Because what, that's what we often do. We get breakthroughs and then we start telling other people how to get the breakthrough by the, by the way we got it. This is the way you get it. You come up here and you do this or you fast for 40 days or you read the scriptures or you get up at 5 o'clock. We make rules because then God's impressed by the hoops we've created because that's how it worked for us. But then you look at Jesus healing miracles and he never does one thing the same ever. You go, oh shoot. What's the methodology? Keep close to the Father. I'm going to have to get moving here. But what is cool about this, this where, where Peter stands up, in the last days God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, he starts explaining it. I wonder whether the explanation that he gives, he doesn't actually get from the disciples who came back from the Emmaus Road and said, this is what Jesus showed us. And because Peter is not uh, probably an audible learner, uh, he probably takes those clues and he, he, God's spirit uses them to give him the words to be able to speak at this time, where they're saying, what does this mean? See, the cool thing about this too is you, you, how many of us spend our time evaluating Scripture by our experience? And if it doesn't happen for us, then we say it's not true. Rather than having the humility of saying it, happened, it hasn't happened yet to me, but I'm still going to search and expect more to happen because I'm not as satisfied with what I have at this point. It's called humility and hunger. When you take that out of the equation, you end up again with religion and theology. And I've been through some of the finest theological schools in the world, and they're absolute nonsense. They're absolute nonsense in terms of life. I mean, you could, you could distill out maybe some learning, that's good, but there's a lot that's just people lecturing to people about things they've never experienced. The most remarkable thing about Peter standing up and speaking like he did was that he stood up and spoke like he did. It's one of the evidences for the resurrection. How does God take this uneducated, terrified, rather cowardly uh, man called Peter, who didn't look like rock but looked like shifting sand even at this point, and transform him in six weeks into a man who would stand up and take the risk of all kinds of ridicule, imprisonment, and possibly death, and all the other disciples? 
His spirit indicted in him a confidence and a boldness. He knew the facts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in some part, but he needed something to ignite him on the inside to enable him to stand up and say, I know. And that's what happened. And he stands up and he speaks about the, how this is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He quotes Joel and he says, this is what that is. And that is what this is. And what does he end with? He says, Jesus was a, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. He wasn't accredited by politicians. He wasn't accredited by men and women. He wasn't accredited by anything else other than the witness of heaven over his life and his ministry to the remarkable things he did that caused him to stand up and stand out and cause people to look and listen. And one of the things that we get stuck in is we think, I don't know about you, but we might think that my words and my life is enough to convict people. How's it working? When you walk in the room, people just see Jesus. Yeah? Now there's a declaration we make that says, yes, when I walk in the room, Jesus is present. His kingdom is present. That's, a, that's faith. Sometimes believing for what we don't yet see. It's true. Jesus, everyone who said yes to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is in you. Problem is, it's trying to get out of you. And that's not as easy. It's easier for Jesus to get in you than to be let out of you because you control your body. And he says, submit to me, become as little children. And many of us are like tadpoles. We've got very big heads and we say a lot about what we think to justify what we don't do. So I don't see Jesus in you. I just hear a lot of babble. Because what does Jesus look like? He loves. He's gracious. He's not offended. He serves. He volunteers. He lays down his life. He has e extraordinary faith and grace for people he doesn't like. I mean, he loves you and me. And so there's this whole area of the Spirit in us coming out of us in a way that gives power. And that's what Peter was manifesting. They were remarkable. I'm sure the disciples said, what happened to Peter? Except they were going up and down too. What's happening to me? You see, what God was saying and what God was doing, and I'm going to give you lots of reasons in, in five minutes, was what we see happening after the resurrection and the ascension is the disciples becoming like Jesus. But this time they were human beings with sin and incompleteness. Peter still had issues, we know that. He had prejudices against the Gentiles. It was embedded into him as a Jew. He had issues with his confidence where Paul had to say to him, you're just pretending to, you, you're a people pleaser, Peter. Fish had worked with, but not Peter, people. Where Peter started behaving, eating in a certain way in Acts, it tells us. So Peter wasn't perfect, but he was filled and used in his imperfection and he grew. And that's why there's hope for all of us. But God was saying, he was, he was accredited to him with signs and wonders. And I believe Jesus said, you will not build my church unless accredited to you are also signs and wonders. I come to you not with mere words, but mere in weakness, but with words of power. Paul says something like that. And so my question to us as a church is, do we want to be a people of power? Do we want to be a people in whom the power of God can be manifest 
Do we want to be a people who are willing to take some risks? Do we want to be a people who are so humble and so hungry that we go, when people make mistakes, we still have grace to forgive them, but at least they're trying. But our desire is to see the presence of God here so that the lame walk and the blind see. And we're not talking about what happened 2,000 years ago. We're not talking about what happened in, in Africa. We're talking about what happened in Port Alberni. And we're under no illusion it's not me. Well, you'll be under no illusion it's not me, but I'm not sure about you. You know, it's not us. The devil's great lie to us is that we're never good enough. Or we're not spiritual enough. Or we're not rich enough. We're not poor enough. We're not educated enough. We're not this or that enough. And ultimately, we need to be a people who are just open to him. And humble, because you need humility to be able to question and to talk together about what is happening. He was accredited by the signs and wonders. And Jesus says this in John 10:37: "Do not believe me unless I do the works of unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father." It's a huge, huge section of church that talks about cessationism, which says God used the gifts of the Spirit to to validate Jesus to begin the building of His church, and then He stopped that. And you. I mean, I sh- it's not in the scripture. It's just like, what? Why? Because now the church is sufficient. Well, if the church without the Spirit is sufficient, I don't want to be a Christian. I've been in a church without Jesus. I've been abused by religion. It's the last thing on earth I'd ever call anybody into. And it's the last thing on earth I would ever find attractive. Because human beings are sinful in their core and they are, are, are able to take the best things and make them the worst. We all have that capacity. Till the day we die, we have that capacity. It's why we need one another. You think you need some other people around you just to keep you in check and to encourage you? Some of you are not too sure. You say, why? What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, they do. Turn the person next to you. I need you. Even if you have to say it through gritted teeth. And I need you too. So after Peter's talk, I don't have time. I just want to actually alert us to something that I think is incredibly exciting and worth going after. But I want to illustrate it so that you don't think I'm just getting it out of my thumb. After Peter addresses this crowd and he talks about Jesus and he talks about how he's been crucified and how they as Israelites have actually crucified Jesus. You know, politically now you're not allowed to say that because it wasn't just the Jews. It was we've all crucified Jesus. Absolutely, but he was still killed by the Jewish establishment of the time, who is us anyway. And the people said, as, as after every message is, is the best thing, what does this mean and what do we do? And he says, uh, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 were added to their number. Now if you go into the temple actually in, in Jerusalem, they were probably baptized in what they call the mikvahs, which are baths at the, te- at the steps coming up into the temple. You can still see them. A mikvah is a, like a ritual bath. You walk in one side and you walk out the other. They used to put on white robes and do that. And that would have been probably what they used for baptism. They said, okay, let's baptize them all in the mikvahs. Now you baptize 3,000 people, what are you going to do? They've never done it before. They'd probably go, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They might not have got their theology right. They might have just said, Get wet in the name of Jesus, rise up in the name of Jesus, hallelujah in the name of Jesus. Who knows? What I'm trying to say is he said, repent, believe, and that you'll be filled with the Spirit. And I don't think there's a huge formula here. 
I think it's just an attitude of heart that says, I, am, I ask you to forgive me for where I grieve you. Or I just know that I'm a sinner. Thank you that you have stayed in my place. I don't think they had a great theology about the crucifixion. I don't think they had a clue about forgiveness of sins, really. It was very primitive, but God said, that's enough. Faith of a mustard seed. Don't think so much. Some of you need to think a bit more, but God is much more willing to rescue us than we are to reach out to him. He's much more willing to respond than we are to ask. You love your children? They get in trouble? They just have to blink in your direction. And you probably go and help. Go and help. Some of you do that too quickly. Because God lets the prodigal son go. But it's another whole story. But God loves you. And he loves me. And he loves us. And, and so he calls them to repentance. And 3,000 are added. And they share together. But what I want to point out, I'm just going to point this out as headlines. In Acts 3, Peter and John go up to the temple and they heal the blind beggar, who was the lame beggar, beggar who was lame from birth. That's pretty spectacular. In Acts 4, they go out in boldness into the streets. Their healing miracles qu- caused them to go to prison. I wonder what that would do to our healing miracles. They, when they were filled with the Spirit, And God began to work in them. They got boldness to go into a marketplace, a marketplace where Romans were and Jewish hostility was where they could have been killed. All I'm speaking about is our nonsense in our Gospels in North America that all God wants to do is bless me, give me five weeks holiday every three weeks and make sure I've got enough money to last me the rest of my life. You know that I'm being caricaturing this, but it's not far off. The blessing of God upon you is not just about how comfortable you can be, but how courageous and how laid down your life is so that others will be blessed through your blessing. Without being a blessing to others, you're just a blessed nuisance. And there are too many of those. God gave me this. I'm so grateful for all he's given me. I'm not sharing it because I'm going to use it for me. Because I earned it. I deserve it. I went to Bible study for 15 years and I'm blessed. I'm laughing at us. These guys, when they were blessed and filled with the Spirit and given up everything, could have, did go to jail. I'm not saying we have to go to jail. I'm merely saying blessing and filling of the Spirit doesn't necessarily mean easy life. But they would have said, there's nothing else we can do. And you know what? There's something invigorating about standing for what is right. There's something invigorating about going into the streets for something that is right and true. There's something invigorating about discovering you have something to live for. Where fear is not your issue, it's actually truth rises up. So Peter and the disciples go into the, into the streets and they begin to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And look what Acts 2, the, 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 the lame, in Acts 3, the lame man walks. In Acts 4, they're power and bold in the marketplace and in jail. They're not like quiet and subdued and victims in jail. They're actually alive in jail. They're free in jail and out of jail. They're discovering. Freedom is a state of being in Jesus no matter what the physical are. Acts 5 verse 12, I'm just pointing these out. Apostles apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to gather together. People brought sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. I'm sure there was some superstition, 
some crazy stuff, but everybody was healed. All of them were healed. Well, that was that for to get the church started. Then people could come in as a congregation, listen to one person and be bored out of their skull. That's what we've settled for sometimes. Easy for me to say. See, I'm doing all the talking. Act 6. They wanted people to help with the, the tables, with the widows. And they said, well, get the, three, the seven slackest guys around who don't do anything and get them to go and do that. No, they didn't. They said those who were filled with the Spirit, who know Jesus. Why? Because those who were helping with the tables were going to do ministry. And two of those helping with the tables out of Acts 6 were Stephen and Philip. And Stephen, we told, are told, did miraculous signs. Uh, he performed great wonders and signs among the people. A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people while he was caring for the widows. This is just a phrase to say nobody is excluded. Nobody can say, well, I'm just a helper. Nobody can say, I just do this. I just serve at tables. No, serving at tables means you can minister in the power of the Spirit. Cleaning the washrooms means you can minister in the power of the Spirit. You're just doing something anyway. You can multitask in the kingdom. Stephen serves at the tables. He, he, he ministers with power. In chapter 7, he gives one of the greatest speeches and acts to whom Saul is listening. And when Saul listens to him and watches him and watches the people who are under Saul basically taking him out and stoning him and, Saul and, and Stephen looks at him and says, Father, forgive him. That is probably the moment when Saul's heart was touched. And the man who was one of the most violent, oppressive religious leaders around Jerusalem was beginning to be transformed by the power and the miracle of God and the witness of Stephen, probably, to become the greatest mind to produce the half the scriptures we read today. Who would have known? We would have gathered and said, Lord, why do you let Stephen die? Why does he do this? Why do you let this happen? And in heaven, Stephen's sitting there saying, wow, you used me like that. You never know. Filled with the Spirit, Stephen was killed. Learn to stop wringing your hand and start saying, oh, why is it so hard? Start saying, Lord, I thank you that you're present in this. Stop trying to get out of trouble and start being bold in the midst of trouble. Rise up and literally to hell with the victim spirit. To hell with the victim spirit. Nothing is fair. It's not fair that we can gather here without guns going off. Keep saying I've got to hurry up, which is true. Acts 8, is Philip, Acts 8 Philip goes to Samaria. He meets, he meets somebody. They paid close attention to what he said, and he did miracles. In Acts 9, Saul is converted. An amazing miracle. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision about unclean animals and is the first one to go into Cornelius' house and the whole Gentile Jewish thing gets broken embryonically by the power of the Spirit through a vision. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are speaking boldly about grace. They go to Lystra and heal a man lame from birth. Everybody wants to worship them. They say, we're just humans like you. What's changed? What's changed? The whole of Acts is about a God supernaturally touching ordinary human beings and empowering them to do extraordinary things. And that's meant to be the Christian lifestyle. But you don't do it if you don't know you could do it. And you don't do it if you're not open to it. And you don't do it if you don't risk and try. 
and then eventually go, I can't give you anything. Silver and gold I don't have. I don't have any words. I don't actually know what to do. But the Jesus in me, I bless you in the name of Jesus. That's all you need to do. You can do that. I mean, if you want some excitement, stop looking at blowing up your head and blow up your heart. If you want some excitement about experiencing God and Jesus in your life, ask him how he can flow through you into the life of others rather than how everybody can take care of you. And then when you're all fixed, then you can be useful and happy. It won't happen. The joy will come with the serving of others. The joy will come with just saying, Lord, here I am. As Paul said, I've learned to be content. Finish with this. There's a difference in believing what God can heal, believing that God can heal and that he wants to heal, and believing for healing. You can believe a promise but not have faith to appropriate that promise. Which means I can sit here and stand here and say, I believe Jesus heals today, but if we never actually say, okay, let's ask him to heal now, what's happened? I've chickened out. I don't believe it. Or I pray a, a prayer. Father, I just pray for your healing over everybody here. We bless you in the name of Jesus. And what's just happened? Very respectable. I've done smoke and mirrors. It looks like I have faith, but I'm not testing it nor you. So we have this undercover agreement. Let's not embarrass each other. Let's not make each other feel awkward. Let's just agree to keep it quiet. And then if something happens, we can talk about it. But don't push your luck. <laughs> right? No, nobody else feels that way. It's just me. Well, let me... This is where I am finishing. There are three times where Jesus doesn't heal. One is in Mark 6, where he goes into his hometown, Nazareth, and he's among people who knew him from birth. And when you're among people who know you for a long time, you know what they say. Well, I know you. Nothing good can possibly come from you or Nazareth. I know who you are. I know who your family is. I know what your brother's done. I went out with your sister, and I I know. There's no way. (laughs) And so Jesus was not able to do any very much other than heal a few people in Nazareth because of the cynicism or the familiarity of the people he had grown up with, which must have been very painful. In fact, his brothers and sisters didn't even believe him initially. Beware of familiarity blinding you to what God is doing. The second time he couldn't do anything was when he was... Uh, he had just fed 4,000 people in Mark 8 and they went over to... Uh, uh, the Gadarene place, I think. And uh, he basically, they landed there by boat and, and the Pharisees were there and they said to him, uh, do, a, do a sign for us. Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And he left them and got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. Because God is no entertainment. And so when people say, oh, you've got to do a sign, he says, no, I won't do a sign. Because you're not asking from a place of compassion and need. You're asking from a place of judgment. And you're actually not even equipped to judge me. So I'm not going to dance to you. And you will find if that's your attitude, if, if God has to... Pre- now, he's gracious. So actually, sometimes, like Thomas, he will. He, you know, test, test me and see. But there's another attitude that goes, even if I show you a sign, you will argue about that. And even if I do this, you will argue about it. Because nothing that happens ever seems to be enough for you. Some of us could be like that. 
It's never enough because ultimately you need a change of heart, not a change of mind. And the change of heart comes where, where you fall like Peter before Jesus when he says, depart from me, I'm just a sinner. Everyone who knows the power of Jesus has to be broken under the presence of Jesus. Where you just go, apart from him, I'm nothing. In me, there is nothing that's good, nothing that's worth boasting about. In him, everything is. And that's why sometimes God lets us suffer because suffering is the one place where we begin to lose hold of control of our lives. And all our theology and all our, our thinking leads us to a place of going, it's not working here. And then God can use us. And the other place that Jesus couldn't, uh, didn't do a miracle was when he was on the cross. And they said, well, if you're God, come down. And at that point, he didn't do anything miraculous. He said, I can cause 12,000 legions to come down and save me. But if he had done a miracle then, the miracle of the resurrection wouldn't have been there. And so sometimes he doesn't make sense. Why don't you save yourself? Because I'm actually saving you. You idiot, you don't know what you're asking. If I come down, you're still a sinner. If I come down, you have no forgiveness. If I come down, there is no breakthrough for you. But everything rational in me says it doesn't make any sense. Which is why trying to figure God out through our natural is just crazy. He gives us little, little fingerprints to give us enough to jump forward. But we will never have full understanding. We will never have full understanding. And so he couldn't, he didn't do a miracle then because the timing wasn't right for the bigger picture that God had. If God wanted man sick, he would have created sickness, but God never said, let there be cancer, autism, colds, and the flu. Instead, the Bible tells us that God sent his word to heal us. Sickness was not sent to teach us a lesson. God sent his only son, Jesus, to teach sickness a lesson. It's a quote from Chris Gore, teaches out of Bethel. So, are we Nazareth? Or are we somewhere else? Are we those who are spectators, who are wondering what God might do next, or are we just those who are saying, Lord, meet us here? So, you know, the risk for me is I can't, I can't end this. I can't end this talk with any integrity without asking God to heal. If I do that, I'm a coward. And nothing I say has any substance. You'd think I've just mentioned the word sex. Because it's, it's basically, you know, it's like when the rubber hits the road. It's like, oh no, what happens if you know that I'm actually totally relaxed with that? With the fact that I can't heal anybody. I feel no pressure to heal. I wouldn't have said that years ago. It's, everything's a process. I'm saying that to encourage you. Just do the next step for you, whatever that is. Let's ask God to minister to us still. Let's uh, say, what do you want to do, Jesus? Jesus. 